Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Dr. Josh Packard. He's the executive director of the Springtide Research Institute, which has just issued a survey of Generation Z, well, young people in America, including Generation Z, not just millennials. We've heard a lot about millennials for the last 15 years, but Generation Z is reaching, uh, some of them are reaching their majority. And this, uh, this adds them to a, a, finding, a set of findings about what's going on, uh, especially with the spiritual, emotional situation of young people in America. Welcome, Dr. Packard. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Please call me Josh. Okay, Josh. Thank you. The, the survey, uh, I mean, well, a portion of the work that we're going to discuss is called The State of Religion in Young People 2020, Relational Authority. Uh, first... Content, what, what prompted this project? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, we've, uh, I'm a sociologist, have, uh, have been trained, you know, I have a PhD in sociology from Vanderbilt and was a professor for a long time before coming over to Springtide mm-hmm. Research Institute. And really, you know, at Springtide, what we do is focus on 13 to 25 year olds. And we're really interested in the places and ways that they make meaning in their lives. And, you know, I think previously a lot of this work would have been done through, you know, a particular faith tradition lens or through a congregation lens. But what we realized is that increasingly young people were basically doing what you would consider in years past to be religious work. You know, they're like, what should I do with my life? You know, what's going to happen when I die? What are my values, et cetera? But it was happening outside of those institutional contexts. So we decided to just go where they are and ask and like find out you know, what they were talking about and, yep. and how they were being guided through life. You've been interested during your academic time as well in the spiritual condition of the young? Was, was that part of your, your, your training, your dissertation, previous research? Yeah, I've been, a, um, I've been studying the new religious movements and formations in the United States now for about the last 15 years or so, and now just with this explicit focus on, on the youngest generation, Gen Z, you know, uh, who are just, as you mentioned, sort of just coming of age. And I think they're, I think they're dramatically different than, than what we've seen from previous generations. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to elaborate on that as we as we get a little further into the interview about about their distinctiveness relative even to millennials just a few years older than them. But I I I, I tend to think you're right. We'll, we'll talk about that. But let's get to the first major finding listed in the report, and that is quote: 24% of young people with no adult mentors never feel like their life has meaning and purpose. Now the word. I mean, all teenagers sometimes, you know, they have their <laughs> right. stuff, but never, never, Josh? 
Never. It's a, uh, you know, that finding goes into what I think is this is sort of the overall theme here, which, you know, these, the, the importance of relationships just cannot be overstated. Institutional connections, attendance, even at events, these things just don't mean what they used to mean. Um, young people told us in all, so we did 10,000 surveys, over 150 interviews uh, for this report. And in lots of different ways, they told us, yeah, I show up to places, but that doesn't mean I belong there. It doesn't mean like I, I'm connected to that place. And so it's, it's a startling realization when you start to think about the number of young people who don't have those kinds of adult mentors and presences in their lives. And, and then when you start to see how that is connected to a sense of, you know, living a meaningful life, well, I mean, it's, it's sort of alarming. What kind of causal connection, if you, if you speculate based on your, your, your background, your own knowledge, if you speculate about the role of adult mentors here, what, what, would you, what do you want to say about meaningfulness and mentors? Apart from the obvious, you know, mentors are important. And any, anything oh, yeah. to, to dig deeper on that. But, you, but of course, like, as you sort of allude to there, mentors have always been important. So what's new about this? Well, what's new here and, and what's worth sort of like reframing the way we actually do things is just exactly, not, not just how much mentors are important to young people, but that they're sort of the last, trusted adults are sort of the last place that um, can speak into, influence, have some say over the life of a young person. So let me, give, let me explain what I mean. Yeah. In previous generations, we used to have relatively high levels of trust for social institutions. So things like the military, the government, media, healthcare, religion, etc. But for the last 30 or 40 years, what we've seen is a pretty steady erosion. Uh, not, not our own research, Springtide has been around that long, but lots of you know, Pew and Gallup and other reputable general social survey, et cetera. Steady decline in the confidence across the board. And what that means is that, you know, when you lose trust in these institutions to sort of tell you the way that you should live your life, you're left with one of two things. You've either got your peers or you've got, you know, some other relationship with somebody who's maybe not a peer. And for young people, of course, peers are often the source of as much stress as they can be comfort. And that leaves trusted adults. And so like when we ask young people, you know, to sort of tell us on a scale of one to 10, how much they trust social institutions, nothing gets higher than like a five and a half. Yeah, I, I, that, that is actually, I, w- I wanted to get to, to that finding as well. It was extraordinary how you had a scale of one to 10, one being no trust, 10 being absolute trust, you know, full trust. And yeah, military, religious institutions, uh, they, they, they all get about a five. I mean, which is yeah. When we're talking about trust, sort of, eh, that's not that's not even like half trust. I mean, trust it seems has to be pretty full for it to count as trust. So I I actually took the fives that you came up with, just that middling trust, as worse than than sort of average trust. Or like the minimum threshold for trust or something like that. I agree. Yeah. I think that's the right way to think about it. Um, now, the real story there, of course, is that it's not, and the reason why we put that in the report is because what somebody should walk away from that understanding is that this isn't the fault of any one institution. This is not because like some right. church leader behaved poorly one time. Right. This is a social transition. Now, but when you juxtapose that with the levels of trust that young people have for adults who act in a particular way, if you can get the right qualities and characteristics, 
you know, in your interactions with young people, they express trust levels for relationships at 90% or higher. Hmm. I think, you know, the, the implication there is pretty clear for where we should be spending our time, um, build, you know, building relationships as opposed to building programs uh, or leaning right. into the institutional affiliation. It's not to say that those old institutions were bad. It's just, you know, they don't work anymore. That, that right there, I think, gets to one of the things to draw from your findings, not building institutions, building relationships. That's that relational authority mm-hmm. that, that you that you put in, in your title. Actually, I want to single out what you said as well about peers. Peers can often be a source of tension and anxiety as, as much <laughs> yeah. as comfort. And, you know, about, you know, about 60 years ago, Hannah Arendt had an essay called The Crisis in Education, where she said that when the mentors pull back, uh, sort of sort of the let the kids do their child-centered thing, when they pull back too far, they actually turn the kids over to a form of peer pressure, which can be more tyrannical than anything the parents can. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, peers, peer pressure is, uh, well, that can send a lot of kids over the edge. We know that. And I'm chuckling because, you know, I think that's a two-way street as I think back to my own teenage years. I'm sure that I caused a lot of stress for my <laughs> acquaintances and friends, too, as much as they were. You know, it's part of being, like, as you mentioned earlier, it's part of being an adolescent. And so I expected when we went into this that we were going to sit down with, you know, teenagers, some as young as 13, with obviously with parental permission and all that kind of stuff. The And they were going to tell us, like, ah, you know, I'm tired of adults telling me what to do and wanting mostly just affirmation from adults. But what they told us over and over again was that they don't want adults to be their friend. They have plenty of friends, or they have at least, you know, enough connections. Um, they want adults to be coaches, you know, mentors, guides. Yeah. And, and that's a really important thing for, I think, you know, for anybody, whether you're an employer or a parent or a coach, like listening to this is like, you don't have to be buddies with them. They're not looking for you to be buddies. One thing that we can set alongside that 24% of kids without a mentor feel no meaning, no purpose, that rate drops to 6% with only one adult, meaningful adult mentor in, in the picture. Just one drops the rate significantly. We are at Springtide, you know, trained researchers and objective in that way. But occasionally there are things that come across the findings that are just, they just call for an emotional response. And I mean, there's this, the, the, uh, the sort of corresponding statistic there, which is heartbreaking, is the way that we kept characterizing it internally, is that something like a quarter to a third of young people have one or fewer trusted adults in their life. And that includes their parents. Hmm. The magic wait, 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 say, say yeah. that again. Oh, Only one quarter. One, yeah. Have, well, one quarter have one or fewer trusted adults in their life. Yeah. Including parents. Okay. And the, the magic number for protective effects that were sort of, you still get some benefits beyond, beyond this number, but they sort of diminish a little bit um, is five. If we can get young people to have five connections to trusted adults, then we see risk factors for things like dropping out of high school, you know, unwanted pregnancies, drug use, et cetera, suicide, they go way down. Um, so these connections are, they're not just like a value add and there's real mental, spiritual, and physical consequences for being isolated and alone. Yeah. Now I, I have to say I was struck by another finding quote, young people today report record levels of loneliness yeah how did they express that in 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 your reports it's a really good question so that that finding originally comes not just uh, from our study in fact we were we picked up on it from a big study done by cigna the health conglomerate that was done maybe four or five years ago now that that's for the this is the first time so it's 
social science has been tracking loneliness using a standard scale out of UCLA for about 30 years or so, 40 years. And uh, this is the first time that's ever been the, the youngest generation that's the loneliest. Usually it's the oldest generation for reasons you can probably guess. Yeah. And so we were sort of, you know, because it's counterintuitive, right? I mean, they're super, they're hyper connected on their devices that, you know, to social media and all these kinds of things. But what we learned and what they told us in the interviews when we sort of dug into this was that, yeah, they might have a lot of friends, quote unquote, in the way Facebook defines friends, even though none of them have Facebook anymore, but uh, followers, I guess. But, but those, they, even they were making the really clear distinction that those were not the same in, in many cases uh, as real relationships. And so just because they had a lot of social media presence, they were saying they, those didn't take the place of having physical, real, in-person. And the one caveat I'll make here is for young people who occupy, you know, a really marginalized identity. They can also find community online that, that is really, really important. That's been raised before. A kid, you know, the oddball kid, the kid with a, a sexuality, that the just, just a very tiny minority population can find uh, connections that 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 help right that, that help with the loneliness but for the va- vast majority of kids you actually have a, a a heading it says increased connectivity decreased connection is that what you mean by that yeah that's exactly right but they're hyper connected but more alone um because there's just not in many cases it's it's in part because the medium of you know the social media medium doesn't necessarily lend itself but also it's because we're in the middle of like you know building social norms about how to even create in-depth relationships i think you can have an in-depth relationship over you know in a digital format i'm not suggesting you can't i just don't know that we're very good at it yet i remember all the hype you probably do all the hype in the 90s and even in the into the aughts about how the 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 internet would create you know the global village and the digital commons and they would use the word community a lot and when when i would give talks to to groups uh, after you know writing about kids and technology in, in in negative terms i say listen friends you're you're building your friends network you got to understand if you've got 3 real close intimate meaningful friends that's really good i mean it's it's actually hard <laughs> to have very to, many to more than that, yeah. deep friendships it, it's it's you know, that's hard, hard to sustain uh, ha- having too many. You can't have 200 friends uh, like that. You can have Facebook, your, your, you know, your LinkedIn connection, but uh, it's almost as if the digital, and you, you can tell me what you think of this, that the, that the digital connection, I mean, does it, does, it, does it give young people an idea of friendship that is, that is too superficial? Maybe. I mean, I'm not so, you know, I would look at this from the other standpoint because I'm, I'm not, not, I'm not suggesting that you're doing this, but, but people that might pick up on, on the thing you just said and turn into a, like so many people in the audiences I speak to that come back to some explanation that sort of blames a 15 year old for the situation that the 15 year old is in, which I can't really get behind. I mean, I think more that what it's done is that it's given adults a false sense of security about how plugged in to social life their kids are. And, you know, they see them on devices and they see them with social media stuff and they sort of think erroneously that they're that they're handling it. OK, it's one thing when your kids are playing in the front yard, and you sort of have to hear them. But if you're not as engaged with how they make friends and set norms and rules online, you can't you can't assume that they're not lonely and isolated because a lot of times they are. Right. Right. And and so the 
You found a strong correlation between rates of loneliness and lack of mentors. Yep, it's. I mean, the adults, you know, and we're and we're writing up some. Uh, we're writing up some results right now from a study that'll come out this spring about how to find both how to find meaning at work and how to make meaning at work, no matter what job you're doing, because work is increasingly the site where identities are built and lived out for a lot of young people. And it's the same findings that we see there that adults in all of these realms are sort of helping to not only model, but helping young people to navigate these spaces. And if they're not there, then they're just sort of left to the you know, to, to the winds a lot of times because these institutional connections that they used to have don't exist. Yeah. For, you know, as we've mentioned earlier, for a variety of reasons. And so, whereas a parent maybe, or, a, you know, a coach or somebody used to stay in their lane and just do the thing that they did and think that, oh, well, there's guidance counselors and, you know, there's, there's career mentors and other kinds of things that can play this role. Well, if young people don't trust those institutions or the people who represent them, then those people effectively can't play that role. Yeah. So, you know, unless they, until they change and start moving into this, you know, relational aspect of it. So it's a, it's a tough, you know, it's sort of a tumultuous time to try and figure out how to, how to get through all that. But yes, I mean, the, the short of it is that, you know, without the adults there to help you make meaning out of your life, you, you sort of don't have those traditional ways and patterns of figuring out how to make meaning from your life. You know, if we turn to the question of religion relative to this issue, we, we now see that 34% of 18 to 34-year-olds have no religious affiliation. Now, as I read that right after reading the, the loneliness figures, why don't more young people see religious affiliation as an antidote to loneliness? Well, it, interestingly, I think that when we, you know, and we do this in the first part of the state of religion and young people, we sort of blow, blow up this idea of affiliation and disaffiliation as even uh, meaningful categories, or right. affiliation and unaffiliation, rather. Be because you have much higher rates of religious, right? Oh. Not just affiliate. Okay, I'm not affiliated, but I am religious, right? All and all kinds of countries. So just over half of young people who tell us they're affiliated tell us they have little trust in organized religion. And, and so it's a much more complicated and complex world than those two boxes that sort of lend us to believe. I think it used to be that if somebody, you know, if a young person or anybody really told you they were affiliated, you could probably correctly assume, you know, any number of things that would follow from there about where they, you know, their willingness to engage in worship and read sacred texts and those kinds of things. But that's not true anymore. In fact, we see a much more complicated picture on both sides. So we see lots of unaffiliated young people who tell us that they, they do have religious values and uh, they do try to live them out and they do go to worship and things like this. I, I think what we're seeing basically is this, well, there's two things. One is it's a continuation of that rejection of they don't want to be affiliated, you know, in terms of their identity with, a re, with an institution of any kind. But also, you know, the church... <laughs> The church in America is a little bit behind this curve, I think, because it seems like just in the last five years, they started dealing with disaffiliation, people leaving the church. But really what's happening is that especially the youngest part of Gen Z, the early teenagers, people up to 17, 18, like they're not leaving the church. They weren't raised in it to begin with. Their parents left the church. The millennials, when we first started seeing that those unaffiliation numbers in the early you know, 2010 or so come out of Pew and Gallup, well, those people are having kids now. Flash forward ten years, you know, like now, you know, or so, and, and like that generation is starting. And so we see no slowing down of that trend. Our own research goes down to thirteen, and, and that number forecasts a future where there's going to be even less religious affiliation. But 
not less interest in things religious. And I think that's a crucial distinction. Should religious leaders see this as an opportunity? It's not that they've lost faith. It's not that they, they, they reject God. It is the institutional rejection. The, and, and that can be, maybe that can be erased or reversed. That's right. I do, I, I do think it's a distinct moment. And it is not to say that those things will be there forever. But, but I do think that there is a chance here. What I, the way I sort of ca- uh, characterize all these findings together is that it's an expansion of the playing field, so to speak. There's a whole lot of young people that you might have thought were shut down to the very conversation in a metaphorical sense about religion. And they're not. They're open to the conversation. They, but they're not going to have it with you because you're the pastor of such and such church from such and such denomination. They're going to have you. They're going to have that conversation with you because you're Ben and they know you because you've been around their lives. I do think that that is a potential opportunity. And we do at Springtime think that, you know, while we do not advocate for a particular faith tradition, we think that for a young person to flourish, their faith lives have to flourish. What do you make of the finding that one third of those who are affiliated believe that having a faith community is, quote, not that important. <laughs> not that important. Well, I, it, I, I think that we've got some really interesting years ahead of us, and I think that that statistic puts it out there for us. And when we looked at the qualitative findings about what young people were doing, the interviews, the qualitative finding interviews, what people were doing um, in terms of like, so if you don't have a community, how are you, <laughs> how are you getting the basics of any faith, you know, at all? And um, I think what we're moving towards, um, and we're going to explore this in the State of Religion and Young People 2021 coming out this fall, is this notion of, of sort of like faith remixed and, or faith unbundled. We haven't decided exactly what to call it. This idea that, okay, so if it's millennials and older millennials who sort of deconstructed their faith and didn't take their kids to church, well, so there's all these pieces of faith laying around, various faith systems. They find some of them on Instagram and, you know, other places, TikTok and Clubhouse. And how do they assemble those into a faith that is both their own and communal at the same time? And those are the really interesting years. And I think it calls for religious leaders to adopt a different, this old mindset of like, we want to get them to believe everything we believe. And now I think it's that you really want to be advocating to have a seat at the table as young people construct their religious identities. Um, They're not going to adopt yours wholesale. So you want to be in that conversation for as long as you can. The title, let me just come back to the relational authority. The word relational paired with authority means what you said earlier, that the young people are not looking for another friend out of these mentors. They want they want to see some exercise of authority. But at the same time, they don't want to, they don't want to identify with an institution. How, does, uh, how do people like, like priests and ministers or teachers, how do, they, how do they form a relationship but not come down as too authoritarian or, or, or too impersonal as a representative of an institution? What, what, what would you advise uh, those people those potential mentors? Well, I think it, it largely, at least what the young people would convey to us, is that it, it dep- it, a lot of it depends on how you show up, in, in, especially in those first interactions. And I'll, let me explain what I mean. So for a long time, your authority was basically part and parcel of your expertise. You, know, you either had some sort of title or credential based on your expertise uh, that, you know, that made you a youth director or a priest, or in my case, 
a professor. And just because you held that title gave you, you know, it meant that you could basically tell somebody what to do <laughs> and they would do it. But what, you know, this, when you combine these things around this sort of like culture of distrust around social institutions, then you basically, you know, the more you lean into that expertise as your, and those credentials as your starting place, the less effective you are in the life of a young person. I thought what was super interesting about this framework, though, of relational authority is that young people told us over and over again, like, you know, yes, these other dimensions, the listening, the transparency, the care, those were the integrity. Those four dimensions were really important, but those four alone were not enough without the fifth dimension of expertise. So you do have to, you know, they do want adults who are an expert in something, either this, you know, they've been down this pathway before in their own lives, which makes them an expert, or they've learned something. But it has to, you have to convince them the burden of proof is on you to convince them that you have the young person's best interest in mind and not the institution's or your own best interest in mind, because that's the assumption. What advice would you give? I mean, are there any concrete steps that you can imagine um, uh, a teacher or a, a, or a minister to try to say, this, this school is worth your affiliation. This church is worth your affiliation. How, how, would, how would you tell a, a, a priest who came and says, how do I do this? So we have these things in the, uh, in the report called Tide Turning Tips, and we try to get really practical with them. I would say the number one thing, the very first thing that we can do here is listen. And uh, it's a, when adults think they're listening to children, um, to young people, to teenagers, they are often off, I would say, as a guess by a factor of five. You know, like, <laughs> get off my lawn. <laughs> you, you think you have listened, but, but it's just you have to do it times five before it starts to sink in. And here's why. So every time we put out a report, we also do a season of our podcast called The Voices of Young People. It's a fascinating podcast, if I do say so. And it's not because I'm on it occasionally. It's because we get young people in their own words in like, you know, 10, 12, 15 minutes to tell you about their life and how, it, how their faith lives intersect with it or whatever the report is about. And they, it was early in, I can't remember, season one or season two, and a young person told me, we're just so used to not being listened to that even when somebody, even when an adult asks me a question, I don't really know how to respond because I don't really think they care. So just the idea of like listening and then asking a, if not two follow-up questions, that would be the single place where I would start. And I know how hard this can be because a lot of times the things young people are telling you about are just, you know, they are things that you do know better you know, you want to tell them, like, that's not the, you should not go to that party or date that girl or, you know, you shouldn't do that job. And you're probably right, but they won't listen to any of that expertise stuff if they don't think you've heard them first. I found w with teaching, you know, I teach, I teach writing, so I'd, I'd, I'd have students turn in a lot of papers, and I would sometimes hammer the, the students on the papers early in the semester. The student would come. I, I would actually... um require students to come in and talk to me in my office hours and I would say listen you're a C writer you can't keep writing this way but you're gonna come in every week and we're gonna go back and forth on your writing and we're gonna get you we're gonna get you up and the 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 conclusion I, I drew over you know years of experience was you can be very tough with 
the kids if you're attentive. If you're there, if you're listening, yeah. and right. you're offering yeah. yourself, uh, you can you can get a lot of you can get a lot of trust that way. And the trust isn't isn't with false false praise. It doesn't work. They 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 sense it out. They sniff that out in a second. Yes, I, I would say in my own my own office hours, the one I think we I think we even wrote about this. The one thing I would say over the years, because young people would often come to me they would from backgrounds that are just so dramatically different than my own that I couldn't even begin to really understand what they were going through but when I would just say simply tell me more about that <laughs> you know that was like that's a, you don't have to be an expert to say tell me more about that and it would take them aback for a second and the, like nobody's ever asked to hear more and and then they would tell me but what ha- well, what that would do over time is like me being attentive to them meant that i could challenge their notions of even like what kind of job or career they could get you know a lot of first generation college students like i work with they tend to underestimate because we pick jobs basically most of the time based on the kinds of people around us and so i would say you could be a lawyer but i, I you know and they would look at me like i was crazy, but they wouldn't think it was impossible if I had done that work first, like you said, being attentive. Dr. Josh Packard with the Springtide Institute, Research Institute, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. If anybody's interested, you know, they can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Josh Packard um, or send me an email, josh at springtideresearch.org. Very good. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.